Chapter Five of A New England Girlhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. A New England Girlhood, outlined from memory, by Lucy Lacom. Chapter Five. Old New England. When I first opened my eyes upon my native town, it was already nearly two hundred years old counting from the time when it was part of the original Salem settlement. Old enough to have gained a character, and an individuality of its own, as it certainly had. We children felt at once that we belonged to the town, as we did to our father or our mother. The sea was its nearest neighbor, and penetrated to every fireside, claiming close intimacy with every home and heart. The farmers up and down the shore were as much fishermen as farmers, they were as familiar with the grand banks of Newfoundland as they were with their own potato fields. Every third man you met in the street you might safely hail as shipmate or skipper or captain. My father's early seafaring experience gave him the latter title to the end of his life. It was hard to keep the boys from going off to sea before they were grown. No inland occupation attracted them. Landlubber was one of the most contemptuous epithets heard from boyish lips. The spirit of adventure developed in them a rough, breezy type of manliness, now almost extinct. Men talked about a voyage to Calcutta, or Hong Kong, or up the Straits, meaning Gibraltar, and the Mediterranean, as if it were not much more than going to the next village. It seemed as if our nearest neighbors lived over there across the water. We breathed the air of foreign countries, curiously interblended with our own. The women of well-to-do families had Canton crepe shawls and Smyrna silks and Turk satins for Sabbath-day wear, which somebody had brought home for them. Mantelpieces were adorned with nautilus and conch shells, and with branches and fans of coral, and children had foreign curiosities and treasures of the sea for playthings. There was one imported shell that we did not value much, it was so abundant, the freckled univalve they called a prop. Yet it had a mysterious interest for us little ones, we held it to our ears and listened for the sound of the waves, which we were told that it still kept and always would keep. I remember the time when I thought that the ocean was really imprisoned somewhere within that narrow aperture. We were accustomed to seeing barrels full of cocoa-nuts, rolled about, and there were jars of preserved tropical fruits, tamarinds, ginger-root, and other spicy appetizers almost as common as barberries and cranberries in the cupboards of most housekeepers. I wonder what has become of those many, many little red guinea-peas we had to play with. It never seemed as if they really belonged to the vegetable world, notwithstanding their name. We had foreign coins mixed in with our large copper cents, all kinds, from the Russian kopeck to the half-penny token of Great Britain. Those were the days when we had half-cents in circulation to make change with for part of our currency was the old-fashioned ninepence, twelve and a half cents, and the fourpence, haypenny, six cents and a quarter. There was a good deal of old England about us still. And we had also many living reminders of strange lands across the sea. Green parrots went scolding and laughing down the thimbleberry hedges that bordered the cornfields, as much at home out of doors as within. Java sparrows and canaries and other tropical songbirds poured their music out of the sunny windows into the street, delighting the ears of passing school-children long before the robins came. 
Now and then somebody's pet monkey would escape along the stone walls and shed roofs and try to hide from his boy persecutors by dodging behind a chimney or by slipping through an open scuttle to the terror and delight of juveniles whose premises he invaded. And there were wanderers from foreign countries, domesticated in many families, whose swarthy complexions and uncaucasian features became familiar in our streets. Mongolians, Africans, and waifs from the Pacific Islands, who always were known to us by distinguished names, Hector, and Scipio, and Julius Caesar, and Christopher Columbus. Families of black people were scattered about the place, relics of a time when even New England had not freed her slaves. Some of them had belonged in my great-grandfather's family, and they hung about the old homestead, at the farms, long after they were at liberty to go anywhere they pleased. There was a Rose and a Phyllis among them, who came often to our house to bring luscious high blackberries from the farm's woods, or to do the household washing. They seemed pathetically out of place, although they lived among us on equal terms, respectable and respected. The pathos of the sea haunted the town, made audible to every ear when a coming northeaster brought the rote of the waves in from the islands, across the harbour bar, with a moaning like that we heard when we listened for it in the shell. Almost every house had its sea tragedy. Somebody belonging to it had been shipwrecked, or had sailed away one day and never returned. Our own part of the bay was so sheltered by its islands that there were seldom any disasters heard of near home, although the names of the two nearest, Great and Little Misery, are said to have originated with the shipwreck so far back in the history of the region that it was never recorded. But one such calamity happened in my infancy, spoken of always by those who knew its victims in subdued tones, the wreck of the Persia. The vessel was returning from the Mediterranean, and in a blinding snowstorm, on a wild March night, her captain probably mistook one of the Cape Ann lighthouses for that on Baker's Island, and steered straight upon the rocks in a lonely cove just outside the Cape. In the morning, the bodies of her dead crew were found tossing about with her cargo of paper manufacturer's rags among the breakers. Her captain and mate were Beverly men, and their funeral from the meeting-house the next Sabbath was an event which long left its solemnity hanging over the town. We were rather a young nation at this time. The history of the United States could only tell the story of the American Revolution or the War of 1812, and of the administration of about half a dozen presidents. Our republicanism was fresh and wide awake. The edge of George Washington's little hatchet had not yet been worn down to its latter-day dullness. It flashed keenly on our young eyes and ears in the reading books, and through Fourth of July speeches. The father of his country had been dead only a little more than a quarter of a century, and General Lafayette was still alive, he had indeed passed through our town but a few years before, and had been publicly welcomed under our own elms and lindens. Even babes echoed the names of our two heroes in their prattle. We had great training days, when drum and fife took our ears by storm, when the militia and the light infantry mustered and marched through the streets to the common, with boys and girls at their heels, such girls as could get their mother's consent, or the courage to run off without it. We never could. But we always managed to get a good look at the show in one way or another. Old election, election day we called it, a lost holiday now, was a general training day, and it came at our most delightful season, the last of May. Lilacs and tulips were in bloom then, 
and it was a picturesque fashion of the time for little girls whose parents had no flower gardens to go around begging a bunch of lilacs or a tulip or two my mother always made me lection cake for us on that day it was nothing but a kind of sweetened bread with a shine of egg and molasses on top but we thought it delicious the fourth of july and thanksgiving day were the only other holidays that we made much account of and the former was a far more well-behaved festival than it is in modern times the bells rang without stint and at morning and noon cannon were fired off but torpedoes and firecrackers did not make the highway dangerous perhaps they were thought too expensive an amusement somebody delivered an oration there was a good deal said about this universal yankee nation some rockets went up from salem in the evening we watched them from the hill and then went to bed feeling that we had been good patriots there was a fast day which i am afraid most of us younger ones regarded merely as a day when we were to eat unlimited quantities of molasses gingerbread instead of sitting down to our regular meals when i read about christmas in the english story-books i wished we could have that beautiful holiday but our puritan fathers shook their heads at christmas our sabbath school library books were nearly all english reprints and many of the story-books were very interesting i think that most of my favorites were by mrs sherwood some of them were about life in india little henry and his bearer and ayah and lady then there were the hedge of thorns theophilus and sophia anna ross and a whole series of little english books that i took great delight in i had begun to be rather introspective and somewhat unhealthily self-critical contrasting myself meanwhile with my sister lida just a little older who was my usual playmate and whom i admired very much for what i could not help seeing her unusual sweetness of disposition i read mrs sherwood's infant's progress and i made a personal application of it picturing myself as the naughty wilful playful and my sister lida as the saintly little peace this book gave me a morbid unhappy feeling while yet it had something of the fascination of the pilgrim's progress of which it is an imitation i fancied myself followed about by a fiend-like boy who haunted its pages called inbred sin and the story implied that there was no such thing as getting rid of him i began to dislike all boys on his account there was one who tormented my sister and me we only knew him by name by jumping out at us from behind doorways or fences on our way to school making horrid faces at us inbred sin i was certain looked just like him and the two strangely blended in one hideous presence were the worst nightmare of my dreams there was too much reality about that inbred sin i felt that i was acquainted with him he was the hateful hero of the little allegory as satan is of paradise lost i liked lessons that came to me through fables and fairy tales although in reading aesop i invariably skipped the moral pinned on at the end and made one for myself or else did without mrs lydia maria child's story of the immortal fountain in the girl's own book which it was the joy of my heart to read although it preached a searching sermon to me i applied in the same way that i did the infant's progress i thought of lita as the gentle unselfish rose and myself as the ugly marion she was patient and obliging and i felt that i was the reverse she was considered pretty and i knew that i was the reverse of that too i wondered if lita really had bathed in the immortal fountain and oh how i wish i could find the way there 
but I feared that trying to do so would be of no use. The fairies would cross their wands to keep me back, and their wings would darken at my approach. The book that I loved first and best, and lived upon in my childhood, was Pilgrim's Progress. It was as a story that I cared for it, although I knew that it meant something more, something that was already going on in my own heart and life. Oh, how I used to wish that I could start off on a pilgrimage! It would be so much easier than the continual discouraging struggle to be good. The lot I most envied was that of the contented shepherd-boy in the Valley of Humiliation, singing his cheerful songs and wearing the herb called Heart's Ease in his bosom. But all the glorious ups and downs of the progress I would gladly have shared with Christiana and her children, never desiring to turn aside into any by-path meadow, while Mr. Greatheart led the way, and the Shining Ones came down to meet us along the road. It was one of the necessities of my nature, as a child, to have some one being, real or ideal, man or woman, before whom I inwardly bowed down and worshipped. Mr. Greatheart was the perfect hero of my imagination. Nobody in books or out of them compared with him. I wondered if there were really any Mr. Greathearts to be met with among living men. I remember reading this beloved book once in a snowstorm, and looking up from it among the white wandering flakes, with a feeling that they had come down from heaven as its interpreters, that they were trying to tell me, in their airy up-and-down flight, the story of innumerable souls. I tried to fix my eye on one particular flake, and to follow its course until it touched the earth, but I found that I could not. A little breeze was stirring, and the flake seemed to go and return, to descend and then ascend again, as if hastening homeward to the sky, losing itself at last in the airy infinite throng, and leaving me filled with thoughts of that great multitude, which no man could number, clothed with white robes, crowding so gloriously into the closing pages of the Bible. Oh, if I could only be sure that I should some time be one of that invisible company! But the heavens were already beginning to look a great way off. I hummed over one of the best-loved hymns. Who are these in bright array? and that seemed to bring them nearer again. The history of the early martyrs, the persecutions of the Waldenses, and of the Scottish Covenanters, I read and re-read with longing emulation. Why could not I be a martyr, too? It would be so beautiful to die for the truth as they did, as Jesus did. I did not understand, then, that he lived and died to show us what life really means, and to give us true life, like his, the life of love to God with all our hearts, of love to all his human children for his sake, and that to live this life faithfully is greater even than to die a martyr's death. It puzzled me to know what some of the talk I heard about being a Christian could mean. I saw that it was something which only men and women could comprehend, and yet they taught me to say those dear words of the Master, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Surely he meant what he said, he did not tell the children that they must receive the kingdom of God like grown people. He said that everybody must enter into it as a little child. But our fathers were stalwart men, with many foes to encounter. If anybody ever needed a grown-up religion, they surely did, and it became them well. Most of our everyday reading also came to us over the sea. Miss Edgeworth's juvenile stories were in general circulation, and we knew Harry and Lucy and Rosamond, almost as well as we did our own playmates. But we did not think those English children had so good a time as we did. They had to be so prim and methodical. It seemed to us that the little folks across the water 
never were allowed to romp and run wild. Some of us may have held a vague idea that this freedom of ours was the natural inheritance of Republican children only. Primroses and cowslips and daisies bloomed in these pleasant story-books of ours, and we went a-maying there with our transatlantic playmates. I think we sometimes started off with our baskets, expecting to find those English flowers in our own fields. How could children be wiser than to look for every beautiful thing they had heard of on home ground? And indeed our commonest field flowers were, many of them, importations from the mother country, clover and dandelions and ox-eye daisies. I was delighted when my mother told me one day that a yellow flower I brought her was a cowslip, for I thought she meant that it was the genuine English cowslip which I had read about. I was disappointed to learn that it was a native blossom, the marsh marigold. My sisters had some books that I appropriated to myself a great deal, Paul and Virginia, Elizabeth or the Exiles of Siberia, Nina an Icelandic tale, with the Vicar of Wakefield, the tour to the Hebrides, Gulliver's Travels, the Arabian Nights, and some odd volumes of Sir Walter Scott's novels. I read The Scottish Chiefs, my first novel, when I was about five years old. So absorbed was I in the sorrows of Lady Helen Marr and Sir William Wallace, that I crept into a corner where nobody would notice me, and read on through sunset into moonlight, with eyes blurred with tears. I did not feel that I was doing anything wrong, for I had heard my father say he was willing his daughters should read that one novel. He probably did not intend the remark for the ears of his youngest, however. My appetite for reading was omnivorous, and I devoured a great many romances. My sisters took them from a circulating library, many more, perhaps, than came to my parents' knowledge, but it was not often that one escaped me, wherever it was hidden. I did not understand what I was reading, to be sure, and that was one of the best and worst things about it. The sentimentalism of some of those romances was altogether unchildlike, but I did not take much of it in. It was the habit of running over pages and pages to get to the end of the story, the habit of reading without caring what I read, that I know to have been bad for my mind. To use a nautical expression, my brain was in danger of getting waterlogged. There are so many books of fiction written nowadays, I do not see how the people who try to read one-tenth of them have any brains left for everyday use. One result of my infantile novel reading was that I did not like to look at my own face in a mirror, because it was so unlike that of heroines, always pictured with high white foreheads and cheeks of a perfect oval. Mine was round, ruddy, and laughing with health, and though I practiced at the glass a good deal, I could not lengthen it by puckering down my lips. I quite envied the little girls who were pale and pensive-looking, as that was the only ladyfied standard in the romances. Of course the chief pleasure of reading them was that of identifying myself with every new heroine, they began to call me a bookworm at home. I did not at all relish the title. It was fortunate for me that I liked to be out of doors a great deal, and that I had a brother, John, who was willing to have me for an occasional companion. Sometimes he would take me with him, when he went huckleberrying, up the rural Montserrat Road, through Cat Swamp, to the edge of Burnt Hills and Beaver Pond. He had a boy's pride in explaining those localities to me, making me understand that I had a guide who was familiar with every inch of the way, then charging me not to move until he came back. He would leave me sitting alone on a great craggy rock while he went off and filled his basket out of sight among the bushes. Indeed, I did not want to move. It was all so new and fascinating. 
the tall pine trees whispering to each other across the sky openings above me, the graceful ferns, the velvet mosses dotted with scarlet fairy cups, as if the elves had just spread their table for tea. The unspeakable charm of the spice-breathing air all wove a web of enchantment about me, from which I had no wish to disentangle myself. The silent spell of the woods held me with a power stronger than that of the solemn-voiced sea. Sometimes the same brother would get permission to take me on a longer excursion, to visit the old homestead at the farms. Three or four miles was not thought too long a walk for a healthy child of five years, and that road, in the old time, led through a rural paradise, beautiful at every season, whether it were the time of song-sparrows and violets, of wild roses, of coral-hung barberry bushes, or of fallen leaves and snowdrifts. The wilderness of the road, now exchanged for elegant modern cultivation, was its great charm to us. We stopped at the Cove Brook to hear the catbirds sing, and at Mingo's Beach to revel in the sudden surprise of the open sea, and to listen to the chant of the waves, always stronger and grander there than anywhere along the shore. We passed under dark wooded cliffs, out into sunny openings, the last of which held under its skirting pines the secret of the prettiest wood-path to us in all the world, the path to the ancestral farmhouse. We found children enough to play with there, as numerous a family as our own. We were sometimes, I fancy, the added drop too much of already overflowing juvenility. Farther down the road, where the cousins were all grown-up men and women, Aunt Betsy's cordial, old-fashioned hospitality sometimes detained us a day or two. We watched the milking and fed the chickens, and fared gloriously. Aunt Betsy could not have done more to entertain us, had we been the President's children. I have always cherished the memory of a certain pair of large bowed spectacles that she wore, and of the green calash held by a ribbon bridle, that sheltered her head when she walked up from the shore to see us, as she often did. They announced to us the approach of inexhaustible kindliness and good cheer. We took in a home feeling with the words Aunt Betsy, then and always. She had just the husband that belonged to her and my Uncle David, an upright man, frank-faced, large-hearted, and spiritually minded. He was my father's favorite brother, and to our branch of the family, the farms meant Uncle David and Aunt Betsy. My brother John's plans for my entertainment did not always harmonize entirely with my own ideas. He had an inventive mind, and wanted me to share his boyish sports. But I did not like to ride in a wheelbarrow, nor to walk on stilts, nor even to coast down the hill on his sled, and I always got a tumble, if I tried, for I was rather a clumsy child. Besides, I much preferred girls' quieter games. We were seldom permitted to play with any boys except our brothers. I drew the inference that our boys must be a great deal better than the other boys. My brother John had some fine playfellows, but he seemed to consider me in the way when they were his guests. Occasionally we would forget that the neighbor boys were not girls, and would find ourselves playing together in delightful unconsciousness, although possibly a thought like that of the Ettrick Shepherd may now and then have flitted through my mind of some masculine juvenile. Why the boys should drive away, little sweet maidens from the play, or love to banter and fight so well, that is the thing I never could tell. One day I thoughtlessly accepted an invitation to get through a gap in the garden fence to where the doctor's two boys were preparing to take an imaginary sleigh-ride in midsummer. The sleigh was stranded among tall weeds on cornstalks, but I was politely handed in by the elder boy, 
who sat down by my side and tucked his little brother in front at our feet, informing me that we were father and mother and little son, going to take a ride to Newburyport. We had found an old pair of reins and tied them to a sawhorse that he switched and gee upped vigorously. The journey was as brief as delightful. I ran home feeling like the heroine of an elopement, asking myself meanwhile, what would my brother John say if he knew I had been playing with boys? He was very particular about his sister's behavior, but I incautiously said to one sister, in whom I did not usually confide, that I thought James was the nicest boy in the lane, and that I liked his brother Charles, too. She laughed at me so unmercifully for making the remark that I never dared look towards the gap in the fence again, beyond which I could hear the boys' voices around the old sleigh, where they were playing entirely forgetful of their former travelling companion. Still I considered to think that my courteous Cavalier James was the nicest boy in the lane. My brother's vigilant care of his two youngest sisters was once the occasion to them of a serious fright. My grandfather, the sexton, sometimes trusted him to toll the bell for a funeral. In those days the bell was tolled for everybody who died. John was social and did not like to go up into the belfry and stay an hour or so alone, and as my grandfather positively forbade him to take any other boy up there, he one day got permission for us two little girls to go with him for company. We had to climb up a great many stairs, and the last flight was enclosed by a rough door with a lock inside, which he was charged to fasten so that no mischievous boy could follow. It was strange to be standing up there in the air, gazing over the balcony railing, down the street, where the men and women looked so small and across to the water where the ships in the east and the clouds and hills in the west. But when he struck the tongue against the great bell close to our ears, it was more than we were prepared for. The little sister, scarcely three years old, screamed and shrieked, "'I shall be stunned! I shall be stunned!' I do not know where she had picked up that final syllable, but it made her terror much more emphatic. Still the great waves of solemn sound went eddying on, over the hills and over the sea, and we had to hear it all, though we stopped our ears with our fingers. It was an immense relief to us when the last stroke of the passing bell was struck, and John said we could go down. He took the key from his pocket and was fitting it into the lock when it slipped beyond our reach. Now the little sister cried again and would not be pacified, and when I looked up and saw John's blank, dismayed look, I began to feel like crying too. The question went swiftly through my mind. How many days can we stay up here without starving to death? For I really thought we should never get down, out of our prison in the air, never see our mother's face again. But my brother's wits returned to him. He led us back to the balcony, and shouted over the railing to a boy in the street, making him understand that he must go and inform my father that we were locked into the belfry. It was not long before we saw both him and my grandfather on their way to the church, they came up to the little door and told us to push with our united strength against it. The rusty lock soon yielded, and how good it was to look into those two beloved human faces once more. But we little girls were not invited to join my brother again when he told the bell. If we had been, I think we should have promptly declined the invitation. Many of my childish misadventures came to me in connection with my little sister, who, having been much indulged, took it for granted that she could always have what she wanted. One day we two were allowed to take a walk together. I, as the older, was supposed to take care of her. Although we were going towards the cove, over a secluded road, she insisted upon wearing a brand-new pair of red Morocco boots. 
all went well until we came to a bog by the roadside where sweet flag and cattails grew out in the middle of the bog where no venturesome boy had ever attempted their seizure there were many tall fine-looking brown cattails growing she caught sight of them and before i saw what she was doing she had shot from my side like an arrow from the bow and was far out on the black quaking surface that at first upheld her light weight i stood petrified with horror i knew all about that dangerous place i had been told that nobody had ever found out how deep that mud was i was uttered just one imploring come back when she turned to me with a shriek throwing up her arms towards me she was sinking there was nobody in sight and there was no time to think i ran or rather flew across the bog with just one thought in mind i have got to get her out some angel must have prevented me from making a misstep and sinking with her i felt the power of a giant suddenly take possession of my small frame quicker than i could tell of it i had given one tremendous pull she had already sunk above her boot-tops and had dragged her back to the road it is a marvel to me now how i a child of scarcely six years succeeded in rescuing her it did not seem to me as if i were doing it myself but as if some unseen power had taken possession of me for a moment and made me do it and i suppose that when we act from a sudden impulse to help another out of trouble it never is ourself that does the good deed the highest strength just takes us and uses us i certainly felt equal to going straight through the earth to china after my little sister if she had sunk out of sight we were two miserable-looking children when we reached home the sticky ooze having changed her feet into unmanageable lumps of mud with which my own clothes were also soiled i had to drag or carry her all the way for she could not or would not walk a step and alas for the morocco boots they were never again red i also received a scolding for not taking better care of my little sister and i was not very soon allowed again to have her company in my rambles we usually joined with other little neighbor girls in some out-of-door amusement near home and our sports as well as our books had a spice of merry old england they were full of kings and queens and made sharp contrasts as well as odd mixtures with the homeliness of our everyday life one of them a sort of rhymed dialogue began with a couplet queen anne queen anne she sits in the sun as fair as a lady as white as a nun if queen anne did not give a right guess as to which hand of the messenger held the king's letter to her she was contemptuously informed that she was as brown as a bun in another game four little girls joined hands across in couples chanting i wish my father were a king i wish my mother were a queen and i a little companion concluding with a close embrace and dizzying whirl breathlessly shouting all together a bundle of faggots a bundle of faggots in third which may have begun with the juvenile reacting of the colonial struggle for liberty we ranged ourselves under two leaders who made an archway over our heads of their lifted hands and arms saying as we passed beneath lift up the gates as high as the sky and let king george and his army pass by we were told to whisper oranges or lemons for a password and oranges always won the larger enlistment whether british or american and then there was grandmother gray and the old woman from newfoundland with all her children in her hand and the knight from spain inquiring for your daughter jane and numberless others nearly all of them bearing a distinct old-world flavor one of our play-places was an unoccupied end of the burying-ground overhung by the colonel's apple-trees and close under his wall so that we should not be too near the gravestones 
I do not think that death was at all a real thing to me or to my brothers and sisters at this time. We lived so near the graveyard that it seemed merely the extension of our garden. We wandered there at will, trying to decipher the moss-grown inscriptions, and wondering at the homely carvings of crossbones and cherubs and willow trees on the grey slate stones. I did not associate those long green mounds with people who had once lived, though we were careful, having been so instructed, not to step on the graves. To ramble about there and puzzle ourselves with the names and dates was like turning over the pages of a curious book. We had not the least feeling of irreverence in taking the edge of the graveyard for our playground. It was known as the old burying ground, and we children regarded it with a sort of affectionate freedom, as we would a grandmother, because it was old. That indeed was one peculiar attraction of the town itself. It was old, and it seemed old, much older than it does now. There was only one main street, said to have been the first settler's cow-path to Wenham, which might account for its zigzag picturesqueness. All the rest were courts or lanes. The town used to wear a delightful air of drowsiness, as if she had stretched herself out for an afternoon nap, with her head towards her old mother Salem, and her whole length reclining towards the sea, till she felt at her feet, through her green robes, the clip of the deep water at the farms. All her elder children recognized in her quiet, steady-going ways a maternal utility and strength of character, as of a town that understood her own plans, and had settled down to peaceful, permanent habits. Her spirit was that of most of our Massachusetts coast towns. They were transplanted shoots of old England, and it was the voice of a mother country, more ancient than their own, that little children heard crooning across the sea in their cradle hymns and nursery songs. End of chapter 5